I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. Once again, this past July, the Sun Valley Writers Conference took place in beautiful Sun Valley, Idaho, bringing together, as it does, some of the finest writers and thinkers in the world. The Writers Conference is always a remarkable event, but the 2023 conference, for a variety of reasons, somehow felt extra special. And so, over the next several months, we thought we would cherry-pick some of the most relevant and scintillating presentations and edit them down to episode length for you to listen to when you have the time. In this episode, three of our most cogent and influential writers on global affairs and history, Anne Applebaum, Robert Kagan, and Evan Osnos, discuss the geopolitical ramifications of Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine, the ongoing battle between democracy and authoritarianism, Vladimir Putin's endgame, China's power plays, and the future of the Western Alliance, among other questions. Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, the author of such books as Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, Gulag, A History, and most recently, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. Kagan is a senior fellow at Brookings, a contributing columnist at The Washington Post, and the author, most recently, of The Ghost at the Feast, America and the Collapse of World Order, 1900-1941. Moderating the conversation is New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos, author of Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, and the National Book Award-winning Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. Here they are at the 2023 Sun Valley Writers' Conference. Good morning, folks, and welcome back. Uh, just a, a word on these two really remarkable thinkers, um, because they are, in so many ways, I think, relevant to 
the subject we're talking about to an extraordinary degree, because when you look across their body of work, what you see is that there's a shared dynamic, which is that they're thinking about the undertow of history, the patterns, and then also our agency. And how do these two pieces fit together? Because you never let us off the hook by saying, well, this is an inevitability, this is destiny, this is not something that we have any control over, and at the same time, you call on us to say, but we must heed the lessons of our ancestors. In some ways, there are lessons there that we can't afford not to know. So we're going to talk about the implications of Ukraine, we're going to talk about authoritarianism and democracy, we're going to talk about some China, uh, and ultimately what it means for the West. And I want to start, I think, probably inevitably, um, with the moment last year, February 24th, 2022, when Vladimir Putin's armies marched into Ukraine. And I want to put the question to you both, beginning with you, Anne. How did the world change on that day? What questions did that reveal to us? What do we now confront? And what do you think is most significant for us to think about beyond the borders of Ukraine? Um, so first of all, thanks for the question. Um, delighted to be here again. Um, in, a, in, this, uh, in this amazing crowd and this amazing place. You know, that night in February, and I'm, I'm now struggling to separate my personal memories of it, which were memories of staying up all night, essentially, and trying to call people on the telephone um, with the broader story. It was a moment when I understood that Putin and an array of other autocracies were willing to challenge, you know, what we rightly or wrongly refer to as the liberal world order. What Putin was doing by staging a full-scale invasion was saying, I don't care about your stupid rules. I don't care about your laws of war. I don't care about the Geneva Convention. And we would then see more evidence of that in the days to come. And not only that, I don't think you are going to stand up to me and stop it because you don't really believe in those rules anymore either. And I have behind me, I have China, I have Belarus, I have Venezuela, I have Iran. Um, I have an alliance of nations who are not, not an alliance in the old sense. Um, I've once tried to describe that group almost as a business conglomerate. You know, you can call it Autocracy Inc. So a group of dictatorships around the world that share sometimes very little. They share very little ideologically. They are not, you know, you have theocratic Iran and nationalist Russia and, you know, post-Maoist China and Bolivarian Venezuela. I would um, point out their P&L is not looking very good right now. Yes, but they, but they, are, they are a group who, who share, um, you know, they don't share many ideas, but they do share a dislike of us and they dislike the rules that we made, and they dislike the rules that say they aren't allowed to invade their neighbors, they aren't allowed to rape and murder at will. And the invasion was an attempt to show that that group is winning and that their way of running the world, which is not rule of law, it's rule by law. It's rule, you know, law is whatever the dictator says it is. International law is whatever the strongest person says it is. And that that order is now going to be imposed. That wasn't the only reason Putin invaded, but it was an important part of it. The fact that we were able to push back against it is also very significant, and I assume we'll, we'll be speaking about that next. And that was not a foregone conclusion, in fact, it was we not a, It was not a foregone conclusion, and on the night of February the 24th, I did not know how we would react. 
Bob, what were you thinking about when that moment happened? Were you thinking historically? Were you thinking in contemporary terms? What surfaced for you as most significant? Well, I have to say February 24th for me, for very peculiar reasons, was not a big turning point because I'm, I'm married to somebody who was in the U.S. government who had been telling me for four months that they were getting ready to invade. And so uh, we spent most of our time, everybody was saying, no, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. And we could think, I think it's going to happen. And so when it finally happened, it was like, okay, you see, it, it's happened. So... Uh, <laughs> And, and I would say in another sense, I mean, the world didn't change, obviously, on February 24th, and Putin's behavior did not begin on February 24th. And you can trace his ambition to achieve this goal. I don't know how far you want to go, but if anybody wants to go back and read his statement at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, where that was his real declaration of, I am going to defy this liberal world order, and then... Following that was the intervention in Georgia in 2008, and then hit Russian activity in Syria, but then again back with the Crimea. Uh, and so this has been moving for a while and, and reflects, you know, we want to talk about ideas, and, and, I, and obviously it is about ideas, but there are also geopolitical realities here. Uh, uh, I think, you know, obviously Putin and many people in in the former Soviet Union, but particularly in Russia, uh, you know, thought when, are not happy with the post-Cold War settlement because it drove uh, Russian power back, and he wanted to try to reestablish. I think Putin sees himself as Peter the Great and would like to emulate that. So in terms of his motivation, I don't think it was as much about what he was going to do to us as what he was trying to do for Russia. But uh, the other thing is, I, I'd like to step back just a second and and maybe say some things that we're not comfortable with, which is his complaint, and it's not just his, it's the Chinese complaint and, and Iran's complaint and others, is that a liberal hegemony has been imposed on the world by force. And they're not wrong. We, because we're sort of all enlightenment liberals, we think that uh, you know, democracy is the end point of human progress. In reality, it's an aberration in human history. If you ask, you know, who has history on their side? Putin has history on his side. I mean, most governments throughout the history of the world have been autocracies. You know, we think that democracy is the natural evolution of human beings, but there is no evolution of human beings, I think, as we've been hearing, perhaps. And it's not surprising that they want to push back at this hegemony. And, and we don't like to hear that because we just like to think, well, it's just people want to be free. And of course, many people do want to be free, but they are free in part today because of an assertion of military power because of wars won, because of power extended. And that's the part of it that we're uncomfortable with, and that's the part of it that Putin actually targets, which is you're being a bully. I mean, from that point of view, we're the bullies, and he's trying to push back against the bullying. And I, I don't, you know, I'm a, I'm a liberal Democrat, so I'm cool with our hegemony, but I understand why he's not cool with our hegemony. So do you see freedom as an unnatural state of nature? I think that liberalism, which is what we're really talking about, and not liberalism like left-right liberalism, but, but the focus on our system is founded on the idea that individual rights are supreme over the state, over the community even, and by the way, even over democracy. That is the rarest thing in the world. The American Revolution was the most radical revolution in history, much more so than the French, because it was a radical assertion of the principle of universal rights, which in many ways is antithetical to human nature. Uh, everybody wants their own rights represented. Maybe they want their family members' rights represented. Maybe they want people to look like them, believe like them, but others, 
they're not so sure about. And I would say all over the world, and including in this country, uh, we are having a fight between liberalism and people who are not so sure that they like it. You know, when we talk about Putin and his motives and his thinking, you know, I often go back to that moment at when there was crisis in Moscow. He was a KGB officer in Dresden. He's feeding documents into a furnace at the moment that the Soviet empire is, in effect, becoming defunct. And he's having... That is sort of the true origin moment of his project. And yet, it took until 2023 in an environment in which that somehow became possible for him to do it, which gets us to an interesting fact, which is that we are living in this moment when there is something happening about democracy and authoritarianism. And I think we have to talk about that. I mean, here we are on a morning when people are in the streets of Israel right now because of a vote that was taken today, very controversial vote to narrow the powers of the Supreme Court, as people here will know. Tom Friedman this morning described it as essentially the biggest challenge to democracy in, is in Israel since its founding. You look at democracy and authoritarianism and you say this is not unique to Ukraine. It's happening all over the place in democracies. And my question is why? Again, first of all, it, one of the things, that one of the mistakes that we often make in the United States is to imagine that our problems and our arguments are completely unique. Um, and even at some of the panels here at this conference, I've heard people explain um, American politics by reference to American history. You know, we were playing out the 1960s or we're playing out the Civil War. And of course that's true, um, but it doesn't explain something else, which is why um, in so many countries uh, we have, so we have very similar politics to those of the United States. So I spend part of my time in Poland and part of my time in Washington. Um, and never in my whole life did I imagine that Polish politics, which are, you know, where there's nothing, you know, there's no cultural similarity, there's no demographic similarity, there's no religious similarity. Nothing, nothing is similar between Poland and the United States. And yet Polish politics and American politics seem very similar. And you just have to take my word for it. Um, <laughs> Same language, same arguments, same grievances, sometimes, you know, same memes. Um, and some of that is um, a, a phenomenon that I think we didn't expect when we first started talking about globalization a couple of decades ago, which is that it's not just, you know, Democrats and liberals who learn from one another around the world, it's also autocrats who learn from one another around the world. So one of the things happening in Israel today is that um, Netanyahu is doing a, a kind of a, a sort of fake judicial reform which bears an amazing resemblance to the Polish judicial, fake judicial reform that took place a few years ago, and the Hungarian fake judicial reform as well. So they are able to share, they watch what one another does, um, they imitate it, um, and, they, and, and, they, and they share ideas and tactics. Um, and this happens in this happens at the level of, of illiberal democracies. It also happens between autocracies. Um, they simply borrow ideas and one another's playbooks. But I think we're also, you know, we're also living at a time of unbelievably rapid change. 
and the change is social, and again, it's demographic, and it's informational. The way in which we get and perceive politics is now fundamentally different from how it ever was before in history. Um, the only really comparable moment is really the invention of the printing press. Maybe you can talk about the invention of radio at the beginning of the 20th century. And because that phenomenon is happening in so many places as well, you're getting a similar reaction. So the, the reaction to rapid change is very often a kind of nostalgia or backlash. You know, things were better before. Or the new elements in our society are the ones that we need to repel. Um, whether those new elements are new immigrants or whether they're gay rights laws or whether they're um, you know, women's emancipation, whatever it is, it, it differs a little bit from society to society. Um, but one of the reasons why these same memes and same tactics and same responses are occurring in different places is that the, the kinds of change happening are, are also the same. Um, and I think, I think that's, a, that's a part of the explanation. You said last year you testified in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and you said, all of us have in our mind a cartoon image of what an autocratic state looks like. There's a bad man at the top, he controls the police. But in the 21st century, the cartoon bears little resemblance to reality. And I'm interested, what is the architecture actually of an authoritarian turn in the 21st century? It's made of different instruments than the ones... So, I mean, there, you know, you have in most states, you have a kind of kleptocratic class. And they interact with the kleptocrats in other classes, including in our country. So the kleptocrats know how to launder money. They know how to move it from Russia to the Cayman Islands to, to Liechtenstein, um, you know, to, to Saudi Arabia. Um, you also have in... Can we talk about yachts, by the way? Is that possible? <laughs> Just <laughs> Sorry. Go on. Um, you have, uh, you know, in each one of these countries, you have a class that thinks about propaganda. Um, they buy and sell one another's troll farms. They use the same bots. They, you know, they study the techniques of, of creating political division, of isolating people, of trolling people. And this is, of course, not confined to autocracies. I have a, I have a Mexican friend who's a, who's a kind of democratic activist there who's trolled and attacked online in the same way that people are trolled and attacked online in Saudi Arabia, you know, or Turkey or, or Hong Kong. There's a kind of enterprise of propaganda that they share um, among one another as well. There's also a kind of apparatus of surveillance. You know, there are Chinese surveillance technologies that are bought and sold quite easily, um, are used in, you know, all over Africa, are used all over Latin America. Um, and so each one of these states, they are interconnected, as I said, almost like a big corporation even when they're ideologically very different and even when they're historically not aligned. What is the historical relationship between Iran and Venezuela? Zero, you know. But now, you know, the Iranians invest in Venezuela. You know, there's an exchange of, of diplomats between Iran and Venezuela. Um, you know, Belarus and Cuba, you know, same thing. Um, these, aren't, these aren't necessarily places that traditionally had anything in common with each other, but they do have in common this need to share the apparatus of repression. And as I said before, um, although I accept what you say about there being big geopolitical issues and issues of power as well, the dislike of liberalism and the dislike of us is one of the things that unites them. And by that I mean 
It's a dislike of their own democracy activists. You know, what is, what, is, what is Putin most afraid of? He's most afraid of the thing that happened in Ukraine in 2014, which was a mass uprising of people shouting about corruption and wanting to join the EU. That's the thing he fears most in Russia. And so part of what he's doing by attacking democratic principles and the democratic world, and as you, I agree with you completely, this began, I think it began two decades ago, even before 2006, 2007. The thing he's doing there is trying to establish the legitimacy of his own power. And for a lot of them, the legitimacy of their own power now has an international aspect. So part of defending themselves at home is attacking democracies abroad or, or defending other autocracies abroad. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of we're, we're saying the same thing in different ways. Uh, but, it, but, you know, at the end of the day, to some extent, for the leaders at least, it is about power. And if we, if we want to understand why Venezuela and Iran and all these others are getting along, it's because they're the only ones that they're allowed to deal with without being told you can't do this. Uh, they're not, you know... China doesn't have a problem with Iran's autocracy. We have a problem with Iran's autocracy, and, and that gets in the way. So in a certain sense, they're trying to find the corners where they can get help. By the way, I don't think, you know, having Belarus and Venezuela and Iran on your side is a winning formula in global politics. Um, it, it is a heck it, of a bumper sticker. It, it's, a sign of, it's, a sign of, it's a sign of their weakness and our, again, I'm sorry to use this word, but all, you know, the strength of the liberal hegemony has been demonstrated uh, in a very profound way. And if you, getting back to your original, you know, your opening remarks, uh, whatever else is true, February 24th revealed the vibrancy of the liberal democratic world order. And, and, and you're right to say, there were, I personally had some doubt about that vibrancy because there are challenges to liberal democracy within all the liberal democracies. And so the fact that, the, that on the liberal democratic side of the ledger in the world, they are seeing the Russia-Ukraine conflict as a challenge to their world order, that's to me very heartening because it's easy for different countries to say, well, I'm okay, I don't care what's happening to you. But there is this sense of common solidarity against a common threat, which is ideological. Uh, it's also geopolitical, but it is very much ideological. And can you help me reconcile something, Bob, which is, I think, a fascinating puzzle, which is at the very moment, as we were all talking backstage, that, that the authoritarian question is, as at least as present in our country as it is in other places, that at the very moment where we're contending with that, we also manage to find it within ourselves to mount this response to the invasion of Ukraine to a degree that surprised you and surprised many of us. How do these two pieces coexist? And I'll ask it more bluntly, if it had not been the president we have in office now, do you think there is a scenario by which we would not have responded the way we did? It's a great question, and it's a question in some way cannot be answered with a theory. It's a historical reality, and it'll shift according to... And, and because I just spent many years writing about the period in the 20s and 30s, the debate we're having over, which is not only a geopolitical question about whether we want to do something about some horrible thing that's happening, but what does it say about us, and how are we breaking out on a, as a people on this issue, in the late 1930s, the country was divided between people who thought the biggest danger was Hitler and the fascists, and the people who thought the greatest danger was the Soviet Union and the communists, and there was not unanimity on the subject of whether we should be going to the defense of Britain uh, and, and the other democracies. And the way people responded to those external questions was heavily, and I would say primarily driven by the debate that they were having inside the United States. And so today, 
they, conser- uh, a, a certain kind of, are we allowed to say Trump? I know nobody ever says the word Trump in this, in this conference, but the- I'm sorry, my speaker, it cut out. I'm sorry, that's right, I know. <laughs> sorry, Bob. <laughs> but the people who follow, uh, um, <laughs> you know, uh, their primary f- belief is that they are the victims of a liberal oppression at home, and, and many of them have decided to view the war in Ukraine as a liberal war. This is part of an extension of the liberal hegemony and oppression that they feel at home, and they are on Putin's side. Uh, whether they want to say it openly or not, some do. Tucker Carlson has no problem with it, but other people may be a little more shyer than Tucker. As I say, the most important thing to understand, and this is always true of American foreign policy, American foreign policy is always a reflection to some extent of the debates that we are having in the United States. I, if I can just say, I think that's true of almost any country. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, why did Russia invade Ukraine? It was partly for internal reasons. It was, it was Putin's way also of fighting liberalism, of fighting the kind of the democratic revolution in Ukraine that had taken place in 2014. He wants to show Russians that's never going to happen here. Um, you pay a huge price for, uh, for even wanting democracy, and look what I'm going to do to Ukraine right now. And people make this mistake often of looking at um, foreign policy like they're, you know, each country is a piece on a, on a game board, and they don't have any internal politics, and it's just, you know, this is a large piece, and that's a small piece, and therefore you can induce everything about them. And actually, you have to look at the what's happening inside the country to understand what they're doing abroad. Just, yeah. just to say, uh, Putin made a miscalculation about what the big threat to his regime was, apparently, because it was not from liberals, it was from people named Prigozhin, uh, who are, who's not especially liberal, as far as I could tell. He means well. You know, to, to <laughs> <laughs> and here he is, Yevgeny Prigozhin. No, that really would be an amazing get. <laughs> um, is Putin weakened by the Prigozhin... Uh, initiative, whatever we want to call it? Yes. Uh, Fundamentally weakened or tactically, strategically has some work to do at home? How much do you think it changes the course of the war? Um, I don't know yet, Um, but the the facade that he portrayed to Russians of being in control of everything is now broken. And and, And that simply gives opportunities for others. Maybe not the same for other insurrections or other violent events uh, to come, but for small things that we won't necessarily see, right? Okay, so this guy isn't going to last forever, so I better start, with, start worrying about plan B. Maybe I should get my business out of the country. Maybe I should start making a different arrangement. Um, it, you know, it will affect how people, especially people in Moscow, plan their futures. I have to tell you, this actually is the perfect segue because I wanted to shift to the subject of China because we're talking about this kind of grand global question of whether there is in fact an authoritarian crescent that the United States is contending with or confronting. How much do you think we should learn about China from what's happened in Ukraine? And and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make a provocation at the outset, which is I think that there is a risk of us assuming that we understand the Chinese rationale and the set of domestic decision-making elements based on what we've seen in Russia. And to and your point, these places have domestic politics too. I've watched as, you know, we all live in Washington, I've watched as there's been a kind of casual assumption over the last year that 
Putin into Ukraine equals Xi Jinping into Taiwan. Therefore, we should do X, Y, and Z. How do you think about China today, Bob, and how it fits into what we're talking about? Well, again, you know, China's position on Taiwan today did not begin with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And uh, China's position on Taiwan is one of, of many decades, and they have been waiting uh, with varying degrees of patience for Taiwan to do what it's supposed to do and re reunite with the mainland. And unfortunately for them, the Taiwanese move further and further away. But we may ask questions about what is the demonstration effect on Chinese decision-making of having seen what happened uh, to Putin. And I'm sure it had, it, it's given them pause because, uh, you know, uh, Russia in a way has a more tested military than China does. And the fact that the Russians so miscalculated and so badly handled this has got to make you wonder whether it's as easy to take over these small countries as you might think. However, China's trajectory has been clear for decades. It, it is still the same today. Um, they believe that the world is in a very unnatural condition. The natural condition of the world, from their point of view, based on uh, almost two millennia of it being like this, is that China should be the regional hegemon of East Asia, and everybody else in the region should be subservient. They will never accomplish that goal as long as Taiwan is independent. And so, they, again, sorry to talk about geopolitics, but Chinese geopolitics has been consistent. Now, China, of course, is also in the position of being threatened by the liberal world order and, and, is, and wants to push back on it. I don't even know whether I just answered any question that you asked. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were speaking in Mandarin, which was challenging for some people. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to say, I look at what's happened over the last 15, 16 months, and I sort of put myself into the mind of Xi Jinping, who, of course, has said Vladimir Putin is my closest friend. You know, he's paid 30-plus visits to Putin over the years, meetings of one kind or another. Uh, friend, yeah, I don't think it's warm and fuzzy, but they have a, a certain strategic sympathy with one another, and, and a temperamental sympathy, actually. But, and I, this is a pizza, I, this is often lost, I think, on the outside, is that the Chinese are irritated immensely by the Russian posture towards them. You know, they say, Russia, you have a, an economy the size of New York State. You're no longer the big brother in this relationship. And that gives them a certain amount of mobility that, I mean, from a diplomatic perspective, from an American perspective, I wonder whether we're fully exploiting the opportunity to see if there is space between them. I was in China now about a decade ago and had a conversation with a Chinese official who more or less described to me, and this is 10 years ago, um, the Russians kind of bunch of Siberian peasants. You know, they come here in their fancy cars and they think they impress us, something along It doesn't along sound like a lines. compliment, I think. No, it wasn't. The one parallel that I think is interesting, and actually I'd love to know what you think about this because you're the real expert on China on this panel, um, is um, Xi Jinping is a seems to be about to confront the kind of problem that Putin began to confront a few years ago, which is the end of an economic boom. So for Putin's first 10 years in power, he benefited enormously from rising oil prices. And he genuinely you know, made the pensions were being paid on time, people's salaries were going up, and part of his legitimacy was based on that achievement. It was at the moment when that began to end and when he began to get more pushback, I think, at, at, at many levels inside Russia, um, that he began to turn more frequently and more loudly uh, to, the, to the nationalist and imperialist ideas that he, I think, harbored all along. And I'm wondering if that threat might not be there for Xi Jinping as well. In other words, you know, if China begins to have real economic trouble, 
will he not be tempted to say, okay, you know, my legitimacy up until now has been based on my ability to, to deliver prosperity. Once I'm not able to do that, I have to offer someone something else, and maybe that's conquest. I can tell you that, you know, we look at the economic indicators of China, and it's pretty clear right now that they're not going back to the days of the growth that they had a decade ago. We know that. It's heading in one clear direction that's defined partly by demographics. But the fascinating indicator that very much chimes in the same direction is that it's not just an economic problem. It's a malaise of a really deep kind, particularly among young people. There's very high unemployment among young college graduates, but the really interesting indicator is that you remember that they relaxed the policy on having one child. It was now two children. Eventually, they said, we're really encouraging people to have children because they're facing this very significant, very clear problem. They're not going to have enough working age population to support their retirees. They've started giving actual subsidies, inducements for people to have children. You remember how you have children. It usually doesn't require a financial inducement. <laughs> and it's not working. And I will tell you that among Chinese friends and analysts, the, the, that is a sign that something really fundamental is happening. And that's where you get into the geopolitical question. And the question is, does Xi Jinping then say, I'm going to try something, a gambit sort of like Xi Jinping, or like Vladimir Putin, or does he look at it and say, I'm not a risk, I don't have the same appetite for risk, I have too much to lose, I haven't fought a war since 1979, and we lost that one against the Vietnamese. We're not doing that. Pulling back to Russia for a second, we were talking about how, what, what threatens Putin. You know, we know how Russian governments fall uh, to revolution. They, they fall in the middle of wars they are losing. I mean, 1917 was the reason, the Russian Revolution was driven by the military's refusal to keep, to keep fighting, and there was another revolution in 1905, which was a consequence of the Russo-Japanese War. The problem, if you're Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin, is that uh, an America, America can lose a war and the president loses his election, but we, we, we go on. Uh, you know, if China were to do badly in a war with Taiwan, Xi Jinping is finished, and maybe the Communist Party of China is finished. I mean, that, these are the kinds of things that lead to revolution, and I can only hope that his incentive to want to do it and solve a lot of these problems is outweighed by the downside, the potential downside consequence of not doing well. I want to bring it back to something that we started with, which is this, in some ways, the surprising reaction that we saw in the United States and in the Western alliance about responding to Ukraine. And here we are now uh, in the second year of the war, and there is some there is some wobbliness in various places, particularly among some conservative politicians. You heard Ron DeSantis say that it was a territorial conflict. What happens if the United States stops supporting Ukraine at the level that it has? What, it, what happens to Ukraine? What happens to the United States? What happens to the rest of the world? Um, I'm going to be very technical in the answer and say that we don't know yet because that isn't going to happen until after the inauguration at the beginning of 2025, if it happens at all. Um, the inauguration? So Oh, sorry. No, if I was there is an carried away. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, I'm saying that so. So there. I I don't believe that um, as long as Joe Biden is president, there will be a policy change in Ukraine. Partly for the reasons that we've been talking about. I mean, I think that you know he sees it as a reflection of who he is, and we're very lucky right now that at least the leaders of the major European countries also see it as a reflection of who they are. 
the French government, the British government, and the current German government also all, um, and you know, in their case, there's a security threat, but there's also a feeling that you know, the definition of who we are, again, as democracies, as members of NATO, as members of the European Union, requires us to behave this way. And so I am not worried about wobbliness um, unless there's a change of government and unless a party comes to power which doesn't believe in those things. And here we do have the possibility that we could have a different kind of president. We have that possibility, um, you know, in France or Germany, although there's no, no immediate election. I don't see it right now in Britain, um, but, you know, I mean, you, you can see it if there was an internal political change. And we're still some time away from that possibly theoretically happening here. Um, and by that moment, the war will be at, a, at also at a different stage. So it's a, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, one of the reasons why I think the US and others have put some pressure on Ukraine, you know, really to do well this year and to take back territory this summer and this autumn is because they are afraid of, you know, the US presidential election starting and this becoming an electoral issue. So that is an aspect in how the US talks to Ukraine. But I don't see the US not supporting Ukraine, you know, as long as Biden is president. But Putin does, I yes. think. And, and so uh, one of the problems is that if you wanted to say, you know, what is, when is Putin going to tire of this? Uh, because, you know, it's not going well still. Unfortunately, now I think the answer is he's not going to tire of it until he sees who wins the election in 2024. And so he is going to hang in there uh, in the hope and expectation that he'll have a different president and at the very least a different tenor of American foreign policy. Problems with the alliance, uh, you know, that guy who I'm not supposed to say, you know, he had said that he would pull out of NATO and I think this time he may have a better chance of, of implementing that policy with people that he's going to put in place rather than the people he inherited who really kind of talked him out of it. So the bad news from our point of view is whatever happens in 2024, Putin is hanging on to see what happens in 2024. All of us wonder where this war ends up and you mapped out a scenario the other day in which Crimea becomes the central battleground. One of the theories that people talk about is the idea that actually eventually this is going to be like the Korean Peninsula. The idea of a war that never really ends but is essentially partitioned. That you have a demilitarized zone, an armistice of some kind, but you never really have an end to the war. Does that seem like a plausible scenario to you guys? The difficulty with that is right now, I don't see why either side could accept that. I, you know, at the moment, it's, you know, it's not just that the Ukrainians won't stop fighting, uh, it's that the Russians don't want to stop fighting. Um, and so officially, the Russian goal, which was the destruction of all of Ukraine and the um, annexation of Ukraine, in essence, remains the raison d'etre of the war. He has not changed that goal. And so before we're at a stage where we could negotiate something like the Korean Peninsula, there would have to be a change of heart inside Russia. And I still think that in order to get to that, the Ukrainians need some, there has to be some kind of political victory, or there, at the very least, there needs to be some kind of political change in Moscow, by which I don't necessarily mean regime change. I mean, the Russians have to decide that the war was a mistake, or that, you know, they're going to stick with Crimea and give up everything else, or that there has to be a moment when they recognize that the imperial war was a failure, and we have not come to that moment yet. Is this Putin's war or is this Russia's war? It's, it's clearly Russia's war. I mean, you can't, you can't execute a war like this without the support of many millions of people. However, I can conceive of leaders of Russia, including 
people who aren't very nice and aren't very liberal and wouldn't like us very much and we wouldn't like them, but I can conceive of some people like that who would think the war was a mistake. So what we need is not necessarily liberal democracy in Russia. What we need is a leader of Russia who thinks the war is a mistake. And that's, I think, not impossible. Bob, what's your thoughts on end state scenarios? The historian in me is really reluctant to try to answer that question because there are so many variables that it, it's very hard to... I mean, again, I keep... when After a month into the war, when it was clear that the Russians were bogged down, I'm, the question on my mind is, where is Lenin? Um, and for a moment, I hope Prigozhin was Lenin. Not because I like Lenin, by the way, right? But, um, but just because I think, you know, we're waiting for someone to take advantage of the obvious fact that the war is not going well, that the soldiers can't possibly be happy, that, uh, and, that, and that the military may crack at some point. And there needs to be, somebody has to pop up and say, okay, this is not going well. Now, whether that person is Putin, it's not inconceivable, but unlikely. So there's going to have to be, as, as Anne says, a kind of rearrangement of the power structures so that the people who think that we really ought to stop doing this, you know, are, are in the ascendant. Yeah, the, uh, the question of what is in Putin's deepest motives uh, is always an interesting one. I went to Ukraine in 2014 with then Vice President Biden, and I interviewed him on the way back, and he told this story about meeting Putin at the Kremlin in 2011, and he says to Putin, they, Putin has a sort of fancy office and Biden is kind of poking at him. He says, boy, it's a pretty gorgeous office. It's pretty nice what the free market can deliver, right? And he gets, <laughs> he gets no, no reaction. And, and then he says, an, an additional provocation, he says, you know, Mr. President, I'm looking into your eyes and I don't see a soul. <laughs> <laughs> to, which, to which Putin replies, I'm glad we understand one another. <laughs> he made that up. I, well, I have to say, I said to him, I, just, I said, that sounds a little too good, actually. <laughs> um, but he said, no, abs absolutely, positively. Well, that's a note to end on. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. A good one, we hope. To catch all the latest from the Sun Valley Writers Conference, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to listen to any of our other talks, you can find them at svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Until next time.